Naismith and nonsense. Let's bring him on. <laughs> Today is Friday, October 2nd, 2020, the Feast of the Holy Guardian Angels. Holy Guardian Angels, pray for us and watch over us. And it's also time for episode 124 of the Barnhart Podcast. And we are in 33 days out from the presidential election. And it's been announced, President Trump, the anointed leader ordained by God, has tested positive for COVID-19, which means he has, sadly, only a 99.3 chance of surviving these are dark days for all of us. Oh my goodness. Oh, just I'm far more worried about what's dropping tomorrow on October 3rd, which this will probably posted this will be posted after it drops is the um, Freemasonic encyclical that I think will go down in history perhaps as more seminal than even the so-called quote-unquote election and all of this this garbage juice that's happening around it. Um, certainly we hope that, that Trump is fine and Melania is fine and everything's fine. But I got to tell you, I'm worried. I'm worried about both of them. I'm worried about him and not because of any of the propaganda that you see on Drudge. Oh my gosh, he's 74. He's technically obese on the, um, on the, on the grid. I mean, I'm sorry. If if that man is obese, then everyone's obese. He's not obese. He's tall. He could probably take a couple of inches off of his waist. How, how in the hell are they getting that Donald Trump is obese? First of all, panic mongering, fear mongering. Man, if I were him, I'd have my two personal old school years and years physicians tasked never, ever ever leave me alone for not for one second because all those SOBs have to do is slip in there like they did with what's the name of the little boy that they killed in the UK Archie um remember do you I should know that I should know this name off the top of my head but I don't unfortunately it's little Archie I think I think his name was Archie and what did they do they called the parents out of the room they snuck into the room and they murdered that little boy they murdered him all they have to do with Trump is is get someone in, say, oh, we're, we're just giving you this, that, or the other treatment, whatever, inject into his, if, if, he's, if they've got him on a drip or whatever, or say, we're giving you this injection. It's an anesthetic. They knock him out. They put him on a ventilator and he's dead because ventilators kill people. They kill like 90% of the people that get put on them. They intubate them. And where's Nurse Claire when we need her? She could run this all down because that's basically what she does for a living. She's a nurse anesthetist. And those are the people who intubate. Knock the man out, intubate him, put him on a ventilator, blow his lungs out and say, wah, wah, he died. Oh, aren't you all terrified now? They could murder him so easily. I'm worried about that. I'm not worried about the Masonic sniffles that he may or may not even have. Who who the hell knows? These people are all such a bunch of damn liars that you can't believe anything, anything that comes out of their mouth. Not anything. Um, So, you know, that's Trump. Are we are just is nobody going to question this? 33 days, like almost a month to the day 
before a presidential election in in you know the 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 United States or whatever the United States is now 33 days before a presidential election and just out of the blue oops oopsie daisy you have this you have this fake ass thing that no one can nobody is even symptomatic with it you have to get tested to even know that you have it oh by the way People are coming out of the woodwork now saying in excess of 90%, 90% of these tests that they're doing are, are complete garbage. Oh, and by the way, we need to go back over and correct what we covered in the last podcast that you and I did about the, the, the test and the cycles. It turns out what the cycles were were how many iterations of replication of the DNA that they had to do. That, that's what it was. It wasn't a centrifuge. It's how many repetitions and iterations of replicating DNA in order to even get anything to show up. And if you do, what was it? It was 30. How, what's the threshold? 30? Ideally, 30 is for accuracy. And I had said the something about, because uh, I misunderstood what the whole cycles business was about. I thought it was about loading a sample in a centrifuge and spinning it. And we got a let's just say, highly qualified uh, person who emailed in and said, no, 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 it's not about spinning anything. It's about a, a heating and cooling process. I, you know, I may have screwed that up again, but it, it, it's, a, it's a heating and annealing and cooling process. And yes, he, he said that in terms of the number of cycles, I was dead on. 30 is what you're supposed to do. But um, he or she, I should say, um, this person also said that uh, based on his knowledge, and this is somebody who had done the PCR testing at a previous point in his professional career and said that uh, based on what he had heard of some of the CDC and WHO inputs is that uh, a critical part of the testing process is in addition to taking a sample, you also have to put a base analysis uh, comparison type in with with the sample to compare it to see is the base type equivalent to or does it match what the sample is and what this person was saying is that the base type going in on some of these tests was human not COVID-19 but human so if the sample was taken from a human then it comes out positive whether or not you had COVID-19 that stands to reason given some of the other considerations that we had mentioned that uh, some of the states were looking at a quarter million dollars or more per case just for, for their Medicare fund. You have somebody uh-huh. test positive in the case. If this was done in a hospital, that's twenty-nine dollars to $59,000 per case in the hospital to have uh, additional funding assistance for COVID-19, um, you know, helping the people who need help because it's COVID-19. And oh my gosh, the China virus is going to kill us all. Well, 0.07% of us anyway. But there's a gigantic monetary incentive to over-report these cases. And whatever you incentivize is what you get. So there's, if anybody is ever interested in the truth in the future, we're going to have to look back at this and and not, if if we ever have a, a real authentic pandemic in the future, not financially incentivize people to to create false positives. So that the, what we, what you were saying there is, is that the the testing sequence is massively biased, not just from the funding aspect to get positives, but even the the comparison system itself. Uh, some of the the analysis uh, comparisons are simply say, is it human as opposed to COVID nineteen? But but he did also. Uh, confirm what I said is that in a lot of cases it's set for 45 cycles instead of 30 
and I referenced the guy, I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, who who invented the PCR system. He made the joke, and I don't know if he was talking to Congress or a CDC panel or what, but he was talking about how the PCR test works. He made the joke about, um, I'm blanking out again, um, Hinduism, where everything is within you. And the idea being, if you run 45, 50 cycles, no matter what you're testing for, uh, it could be something that's not even native to this planet, you're going to come up positive on it. Because the more cycles you go through, you get the most minute possible maybes showing up as right. positives. And, and I've I've posted about this, about how, this is gross, but when you have a bowel movement, the reason why humans are so, are you know, God designed us to be so repulsed by our own solid waste is because it isn't just the remnants of, of undigested food. It's that's how your body purges every day. Virus, bacteria, all of that crap is coming out in your, wait for it, crap. So that's why we are repulsed by touching it, why civilized people immediately build sewers, flush toilets, civilized people wash their hands after using the water closet, you know, as, I mean, it's just unthinkable to not wash your hands for civilized people, especially after a bowel movement, for heaven's sake. Well, um, and something else we've mentioned before is that, uh, or maybe it was in the last podcast or last couple of podcasts, that part of the, the body's natural mechanism for expelling waste is also by exhaling. It's yes. not just trading uh, carbon dioxide for oxygen. It's also getting crap out of your system in the yep. aerosolized form. So if you're if you've got some kind of mechanical device preventing the crap that you're exhaling through your system uh, from getting away from you, so you don't re-inhale it immediately, you will end mm-hmm. up with staph infections and and uh, dermatological infections and all kinds yep. of other uh, stuff that you should never be coming down with unless you I don't know are, are putting something over your mouth and preventing yourself from breathing normally. Indeed, and you know you you mentioned the whole. Uh, concept of bias in this. And you mentioned the financial bias that they are massively incentivized to get as many cases and get this reimbursement money and get this, um, this federal Medicare money and Medicaid money flowing in. Let's talk about the political religious bias of these people. As we talked about in the last episode, this is a religion and these people have converted to it. And therefore they are actively seeking proof sets to justify this religion, this false religion that they have converted to. Look at every day when the stats come out. There are people all over the planet who have converted to this religion and are now actively rooting for there to be thousands of dead and thousands of people in um, intensive care. And every day when the stats come out and it's just, you know, a completely normal day in in terms of elderly people passing away from this, that, or the other, intensive care units sitting empty, continuing to sit empty, basically, or sitting, let's put it this way, sitting significantly below their optimal capacity, which as Nurse Claire told us, optimal intensive care and really hospital capacity, don't ever forget this, is 85 to 90%. They are built specifically to run at 85 to 90% capacity to be profitable. Okay. And yes, that is absolutely a consideration. You cannot build some giant 
thousand bed intensive care unit in Ulysses, Kansas. Okay. You can't do that because it would sit completely empty basically at all times. You have to build these things calibrated to the population so that they are running at peak, um, peak capacity or optimal capacity. Let's put it that way. So you're going to see, you're going to continue to see that when you get hospitals later this fall, when the, when the flu season picks up, as it inevitably will, I mean, it's October, what's the day? October 2nd. We're already, we're already moving into flu season. You're going to see breathless, I promise you this, breathless reportage that this and such hospital in this and such major metropolitan area, it's, it's, it's at 80% capacity. Um, it's, it's designed to be at 90. They're going to report this as if it's the end of the world and everyone is going to die because they're a bunch of lying bastards. And this is their false religion that they have converted to. And they will say anything and they will do anything to convince themselves first. That's important to convince themselves first and then to try to convince everybody else that this religion is true and that they have done the right thing by converting to it, destroying the economy, um, psychologically terrorizing everybody, destroying the education system. But then, hmm, wait a minute, hold on. That's another. That's How do you prove that the education system has been destroyed? In fact, the fact that so many kids are being educated at home via Zoom calls now, parents are cluing into the fact that their kids are being taught things like critical race theory, which means mm. if you ain't white, you are part of the problem. And a lot of parents yep. are going, hey, hey, wait a second. And uh, school saying, making the parents uh, sign affidavits saying that you're not looking at or listening to any of the education or, or should we say, um, uh, programming that's being given to children. Um, that's that's kind of a red flag. You know, the whole you know record scratch Scooby Doo. Huh? Uh, why yep, would, why would you be making me do that? Yeah, somebody just sent me a few hours ago um, a French news piece that, you know, I had to run through Google Translate and everything, obviously. Um, Macron and France, I think it was today, um, they've outlawed homeschooling for the for the 2021 school year. Uh, shocker, shocker. I'm actually kind of shocked that France even permitted homeschooling to this to this point. But there's a heck of a lot of trads. Um, you know, if you have anything to do with the Institute of Christ the King or the Fraternity of St. Peter, you should pull up a map of France and see how thick the parishes of the fraternity and the Institute are in France. They say in France that they're estimating that like in 20 years, 20 years, there will be more trad masses said in France than there are Novus Ordo masses, because that's how quickly the Novus Ordo priests are dying, and that's how booming um, the fraternity, the Institute, St. Vincent Ferrer, um, Bon Pasteur, good, the Good Shepherd. I mean, it's just, it's, it's oh, and, uh, oh, excuse me, how can I, and how can I forget who's, who's probably the biggest by numbers? The SSPX, uh, of the course. SSPX, whose founder yeah. came from France, and uh, yep. half of the half of the groups you just mentioned split off from, mm -hmm. or were formed by the SSPX, or at least closely associated with. Uh, I think the Institute of Christ the King, Monsignor Vauc, was never actually part of the SSPX, but he was, uh, I think, had living memory of uh, Archbishop Lefebvre when he was still in French-speaking Africa. So there, there was there was knowledge of the 
shall we say, pre-SSPX connection. Right. But yes, the in, in terms of the traditional movement in France, uh, to the extent that we have certain cities here in the United States where we have the immense luxury of a fraternity mass, an Institute of Christ the King mass, and an SSPX mass, and then in some cases an SSP, SSPV and 2.5, as you like to say, and some other some other things. In France, it is much thicker than that from coast oh, to yeah. coast. Yeah. They actually have a Catholic history going back to the year 800 or previous, unlike the United States where we maybe have um, something from 1800, Right. Well, the, France is called the eldest daughter of the church. And just this past week, oh no, just um, October 1st. October 1st with this, was the feast of St. Remigius. Who's St. Remigius? Um, in France, that name is Remy, R-E-M-Y, if you've ever heard that French name. Um, the If you've ever seen the Pixar movie Ratatouille, I think the the lead character, the little rat, is called Remy, R-E-M-Y. That's Remigius. Who is St. Remigius? St. Remigius is the bishop who baptized Clovis, king of the Franks, and that he and then Clovis became the first Christian monarch basically in in Europe and it, it all flows from that basically and that was good grief. Um that was in the 5th century. I mean we're going back. We're going way back. So when they call France the eldest daughter of the church, they're not they're not joking around. And there's all kinds of prophecies that say, um, you know, the the, the sorts of um, apparitions and prophecies which church approved, but you don't necessarily have to, you know, take as as a dogmatic article of faith, of course. But that there's all kinds of prophecies that that leading up to the triumph of the Immaculate Heart or leading up into the end times, that there's going to be some sort of a resurgence and perhaps even a monarch that that comes out of France. So, I mean, as much as we're all tempted to make fun of the French and call them cheese-eating surrender monkeys and, you know, make jokes about uh, French carbines, never, never fired, drop once, you know, you know, we could go on and on with the jokes, but France is for real. The, the roots the roots are there and they still exist and if you've ever traveled in France I'm guessing you've I mean guessing by our audience if our audience has ever traveled in France I'm sure most of you have probably been to a trad mass in France because they're that thick so yeah well and the evidence of Catholic culture throughout France is, is thick um, I've never been there myself but I'm, I'm told that every excuse me every fork in the road there's a, a little monument to Saints. And, and uh, every town, there's multiple uh, chapels and shrines, and, and it's just evidence from one side of the country to the other. And you talk about St. Um, Remigius uh, baptizing Clovis. I don't remember if I'm, I don't, if I don't remember if I'm misremembering, I, I don't know if, the, if my memory is accurate that it was Clovis per se, but I think it was when he was being uh, preached to by St. Remigius and talking about the passion uh, when when Christ was being crucified, I think it was Clovis who was who was so emotionally moved and saying, "Oh, could I go back with five hundred of my francs to put a stop to this?" You know, yeah. you know, to to stand for the rights of Christ. 
And of course, yeah. the, the, the Germanic people in the audience would say, well, the Franks at that time are what we call Germans now. They migrated west or, or east into the Rhineland east, area. Yeah, Whatever. Right. I mean, they, they all come from the same stock. How, how one ended up being French and one ended up being German, who knows? Charlemagne, Carl de Grosse, or whatever. It was all one people at one point, but yet they became distinct. I don't know how that, that works exactly. We'll figure this out later in another time. But yes, France as the eldest daughter of the church... Um, it used to be said what was French was Catholic and what was Catholic was French. And that wasn't hyperbole. It was, yep. that's how uh, thoroughly Catholic the country really was. Yep. And it's no, it's no coincidence that the whole, um, the sacred heart was revealed to St. Mary Margaret Alacoque and they were told, they were told explicitly, the King of France was told, you you need to consecrate France to the sacred heart of Jesus. And it was what Louis... That was Louis, Louis the Fourteenth, the son. Louis Couture's, yeah. Louis Louis the Fourteenth didn't do it, and didn't do it, and look look where Louis the Sixteenth ended up. Well, o- and almost a hundred years to the day, and, and you know it's also one of the um, one of the stereotypes of the French that they're very haughty, very arrogant, uh, not the most humble of people, no. but at the same time. You look back to 1570 and, and the the um, the bull that came out from Pius V. Uh, at the time, that that was the one that standardized the the Roman Missal throughout all of Christendom. If they did not have a missal that was, uh, at the, I think it was 200 years old, uh, the other way of saying it was beyond living memory. Mm-hmm. And throughout France, there were numerous missals that definitely qualified for that. Certainly, the Dominican Rite, the Carmelite Rite, uh, certainly um, still persists to, to today. Not that the Carmelites are necessarily French, but the Dominicans are. And, and well, there's uh, a right of Lyon to this day. Lyon has its own right, um, and the yeah. right that they all had before was called the Gallican right. There, there was a French right, yeah. There was a Gallican right, which is what I'm getting to, is that, that we don't normally associate humility with the French, but even though they had, uh, in many places throughout France, missiles that definitely qualified as being older than living memory and, and uh, being ex- exempt from this, thou shalt take the Roman Missal mandate, they let go of their local missiles and took the Latin Missal. Yeah. Because they said, well, that's what's Catholic, and we are Catholic, so that's what we're going to do. And um, thank you, by the way, for letting me post the interview I did with uh, Louis Tafari. Uh, oh, my pleasure, my couple, pleasure. A couple of days ago, he's, uh, if you didn't catch that yet, um, I, I took advantage of the fact, I joked at the front of the podcast, I took advantage of the fact that I did it because I could, but honestly, it's because Ian gave me permission to. <laughs> um, as as Roman McLean, I, I, there was the very first uh, Roman Agenda podcast, and I kind of really wasn't ready to launch it, except that this was time sensitive, so I wanted to get it out. So it's my negative one podcast, as opposed to this is episode 124. And so at some point, hopefully within the next month, I'll get episode zero out which is a, a mission statement. But uh, what Lewis and I talked about was the uh, training program that he is doing for uh, for men and boys who want to learn how to serve the Mass. But it goes way beyond just literally what's the minimum requirements being able to, to learn how to serve the Mass. We talked about the history of... Uh, a lot of the missiles throughout France and the development of liturgy and the idea that um, there were so many different localized missiles, which were legitimate rites, and they weren't forcibly shut down by Rome, but throughout France, they had a very rich tradition of doing their own thing and, and organically developing the their liturgy. But they said, oh, Rome said do this, we're going to do that. They they are they they were still very humble. I mean, we talk about the Vendée. These weren't necessarily proud, arrogant people. They were proud to be Catholic, but they weren't arrogant. So it's unfortunately, 
and maybe this is something that comes as a result of the French Revolution, but the arrogant attitude that we assume, at least in the United States, of, of French people, it's not really accurate when you look at history. It's all all the all the good Catholics get killed and the humble ones, so who's left over but the arrogant people and the Napoleonic types? Yeah. And you know, the don't don't get the image in your mind that when we say that they had their own right, that it was something that was just wildly, wildly different. I, I dare say that if you were to go to, if go in and get in a time machine and go back and go to a Gallican Rite Mass back in the day, you would clearly identify it as the Mass. You'd identify all the parts. You'd recognize the Latin that was being spoken. You'd know exactly what was going on at all times. These differences are far, far less severe than the differences that are between the, um, the, the Roman rite, the Latin rite, and the Byzantine rite. If you've ever been to a divine liturgy, the first time you go to a divine liturgy, you're just kind of sitting there with your mouth agape saying, what, what in the world is happening? And, oh my gosh, he's swinging, he's swinging that, that incense like it's nunchucks. What's going on, man? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's something else the first time you see a divine liturgy. The differences, I think, that were in the Gallican Rite, the Rite of Sarum, which is the the rite that was up in England, we'd all recognize all this. We it wouldn't be like completely um, it wouldn't throw us. It's kind of like if you if you were to see today a traditional Ambrosian rite, you'd recognize it as the Mass. You just say, "Wow, they just say everything twenty seven times <laughs> instead of saying it once." the 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 thing about the aesthetic of the Roman rite is that, believe it or not, and there might be people right now listening who have just recently tratted and who are still having their mind blown by high mass, you know. Um, guys, the Roman Rite is the most sober by far. It's it's sober, it's streamlined, It's um, there's a compactness to it, there's a directness to it. Um, it's got a lot of the bells and whistles that, existed in these other local rites, that's all kind of clipped off and, and trimmed away. And there are liturgists who make the argument that that therefore the Roman rite is in a certain sense the perfected. It's the perfected, streamlined, bullet direct version of the holy sacrifice of the mass. And some people will say, well, that's horrible and terrible. And other people say that's super cool. Um, I'm more on the side of super cool, but you know, super I'm, cool, not super fun rock band. And in terms of that, all of the different missiles and rites that existed throughout the, the Latin church prior to Quo Primum, it was more a difference of, you know, localized, you know, localized calendars of saints, for example, or mm. what readings were said during the mass or right. what, what was the, the order or some additional things a lot. One, one of the things that Lewis and I talked about was the serum, rite, And, and specifically there, there were a lot more flourishes, uh, it's it's almost like the somebody took the highest form of the Latin solemn mass, took a look at the Greeks and said, we'll take some of that as well. Yeah, and added exactly. more incense and smells and bells and flourishes. And that's that's why I've heard it said, of course, who in the world could prove this at this point in time? Because the, the, the Sarum Rite, as we think we know it, ex, you know, ceased to be at about 1590-ish, something like that, because yeah. all, all of the Catholic priests were chased out of, of England or killed, so they or had killed. to go to continental Europe. They had to go to France, at which point they said, ah, okay, we're in the territory of we do the Roman Missal, so let's just do the Roman Missal. So by the time the, the Catholic priests came back to England, 
They were all trained in France. They were trained in Rome, trained somewhere else in Europe, and they were doing the, the Latin Missal as promulgated by Pius V. So the, the Sarum Rite's dead. Now, there, there are some, some people who say the, the High Anglican Rite is somewhat of a continuation. It's a very bastardized continuation, and, and uh, I, it's going to take somebody with a, a legitimate Ph.D., uh, that's not rubber stamped and really knows how to do their their um, research to say to to prove to me that yes the the Anglican has any con any kind of connectivity or or continuation of the Sarum right. Honestly, you're probably just better off going with the, the traditional Latin Mass, Solemn High Mass. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because remember, there was an ideological thing against everything Roman, and that all that poison got into it. It's it's truly archaeology at this point to figure out what the Sarum right was and. You know, at this point, we are getting getting us back to our list of topics. Right now, on the second of October, twenty twenty, we kind of have bigger fish to fry in the moment. So, <laughs> oh, it we will should... be a glorious day when the worst thing that we have to, about which That's we can right. disagree as well. How did they swing the the, the thurible yes. in the Sarum right as opposed to the Ambrosian right? That will be a glorious, glorious day. I want to live to see that happy day. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Fight, fights in the sacristy over nunchuck swinging techniques. Yes. <laughs> Come Bless Lord me, Jesus. Father, I, stand, I got into an argument over the, the, the nature of the serum right. <laughs> <laughs> Which side did you take, my son? <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I cannot give you absolution. You're on the wrong side. <laughs> Go see Father Wilson. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, should we get back to COVID? I guess I, supp- I suppose that we should. Well, okay. Um, so I made the I made the uh, the tongue in cheek comment that uh, our our dear leader, the Anointed of God, has tested positive, and I want to I, I say that tongue in cheek because I know that you really rail against the idea <sighs> of Trump as being the uh, the Anointed Savior of anything, but uh, our our. Um, I don't know, friend, uh, somebody we talk about a lot, Archbishop Vigano, uh, was in a, a recent uh, interview referring to Trump as the Cathacon, uh, if I'm <laughs> saying it correctly. It's one of the people who are holding back the arrival of the Antichrist. And he was saying that if, if Biden's elected them one of the last Cathacons, again, don't stone me if I got the uh, Greek wrong on this one, but he's saying that, the, that Trump is one of the last Cathacons, and, and if he loses, then... We may be seeing the uh, the arrival of the Antichrist before the end of the year or before next summer. Well, let me plug what is going to be recorded. It looks like on Monday, as soon as I saw that quote from Archbishop Vigano, I mean, oh, that was just fingers down the chalkboard. For those of you who have listened to the podcasts that have had Dr. Matza on them, I think the last one that we did, and we need to figure out which number that is and put it in the show notes, what what Dr. Matza's expansion, because we only record a, a Matza cast when he has something new. He wants to, you know, he wants to say something, he has a point to make, da-da-da. So the last one we did, his point was, was about exactly this, about who is this this great restrainer, this catacon in Second Second Th- Thessalonians chapter two? Which I mean, Second Thessalonians chapter two is just super super short. You just read the whole thing. It's I don't even need to give you the verse. You just read the whole thing. Um, who who is this exactly? Doctor Motz's thesis, which I think sounds a lot more plausible, is that the vicar of Christ, that Peter himself 
is the catacon. And if you if you take him out of the way, <laughs> kind of like <laughs> what's happened in the last seven and a half years, is that the removal of the restrainer? And is that what opens the door to the whole... Um, you know, end times, whatever, whatever it ends up being, whatever you want to call it. So, you know, given Dr. Motz's position, which I think holds a lot of water, hearing, hearing Vigano, hearing Archbishop Vigano assign this to Trump. And again, I, I, I fully believe and understand that, yes, God can work with with whomever he wants to work with. I mean, good grief, I myself am am a living, a teeny tiny little living proof set of this. If God wants to take a Protestant cattle futures broker and turn her into one of the people who's leading the charge against this anti-papacy, guess what, folks? That's exactly what's going to happen. That's exactly what's going to happen. If if God wants to use Trump, yes. Calling Trump the catacon, though, I mean, we got to be so careful about just assigning these these crazy, lofty titles to to people like this. I mean, I'm I, I'm I'm. It's super cringe. And like I said, I immediately messaged Dr. Matza and said, "When can we record?" And Mark uh, Mark Doherty and we all said, "Okay, we're good on Monday." And Dr. Matza has plenty to say about this, and he will be expounding on this on Monday. So that will be episode what one twenty five. That's one. That'll be one twenty five. Unless we have something to say tomorrow or Sunday, uh, yeah, it'll be one twenty five. Yeah. Yep. So there you go. <sighs> I don't. Oh, well, then we'll, we'll hold. We'll hold that for a little bit, and yeah. um, we'll we'll see which way the ball bounces on that one. And, and mm-hmm. speaking of balls bouncing, um, the death of the NBA. I see that uh, ratings are down so much. In fact, I'm not necessarily the biggest proof set of this, but uh, somebody I saw in some some news headline that came through that the NBA finals are going on. It's like. We're at the finals what? now. <laughs> yeah. I, I knew that they paused the, the 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 season because of COVID and that they restarted late. But I used to listen to two or three different sports podcasts, but I honestly deleted them all because I got so tired of the fact that it was these were turning into political podcasts. And I don't want to hear what Michael Wilbon has to say about American politics. I want to hear what yep. he has to say about whether or not um, the Lakers have a chance to win the title, which, you know, historically, that's always been the team I care about. But I couldn't care less anymore. I really yep. don't care as long as they are, you know, as, as long as half of the players on the court are part of the vote family or whatever's on the back of their, their jerseys. Um, that that's a joke I heard from another podcast because apparently everything is so politically woke now. You have to say like you know say her name or or you know, the white guys all have the word ally on the back of their jersey now. It's like yeah. how about just play basketball? You yeah. know, shut up and dribble is such an accurate thing to say to these people because if you think we're listening to you because of you college dropouts, let's just be precise about this. Or in the case of LeBron James, you never even went to college. How I mean, many, and, how many yeah. other people do we look to for intellectual or cultural advice who never went beyond high school? Let's be honest about this. Do you ask your mechanic for life advice? Do yeah. you ask your Do you ask um, you know who the janitor for advice on uh, on uh, the direction of what where the country should go? I'm not demeaning janitors, but maybe maybe we should. 
maybe we should do more of that because those people have more um, engagement with real life. None of those idiots in the NBA do. They, they started being groomed, and I use the word intentionally, the same as I'll use it with Hollywood and pedophilia and all that. They start grooming those boys when they're like under 10 years old. They've already identified these kids who are coming up. They get placed in super high dollar, oftentimes Jesuit school systems. They get they get basically coached to be NBA players. Well, they get coddled. The Nobody ever tells yep. them the word no. Yep. Yep. And then they're subverbal. Many of them are subverbal. It's painful to watch some of those interviews. They can only say one thing. Say, yo, yo, man, we got to, we got to come out. We got to leave it all in the court. You know, we got, we got to just, we got to give 110%. It's it, no matter what question you ask them, they say exactly the same thing every time. And it's painful. It's painful to watch. They're constantly getting in trouble because they're all smoking dope. Um, now with, with Corona scam, they're all getting in trouble because they're sneaking women in or they're going to strip clubs and all that because they can't control themselves. They have absolutely no self-control at all. And again, like you said, nobody's ever told them no. Um, and the, the all high school, what, what they do in college, I'm preaching the choir here. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows that Division One NCAA basketball is just is a farm team for the NBA, exactly the same one that Division One football is a farm program for the NFL, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody knows this. This is no joke. There's no academics going on, nothing. It depends and- upon the program. I mean, honestly, if you're playing football for the University of Kansas, you're probably there for an academic scholarship more than, or not for academic. You, I mean, you're, you're there, if you're there for a football scholarship, it's, it's so you can get your degree and go on because nobody really is expecting you to do much. And I'm sure, flip that around, K-State basketball, nobody's really expecting you to go to the NBA for that. So there are exceptions to the rule, but if you are um, a basketball or football player going to one of the top 20 schools, you're not there for academics. No. Oh, no, absolutely not. They never go to class. They're given easy C's on everything, and and that's it. So I I have to say, in all of this corona scam, there have been, a, there have been several things that I found impressive. One of them is I'm impressed with how quickly Americans have dropped sports. I mean, millions and millions of people have stopped watching sports. This is a very good thing. This is an excellent thing. Um, well, it's just it's really- also the, the quality of the product has gone down. And it's not that I, I was watching NBA that much, but uh, every, every you know week or so, I try to go every week uh, with um, Mrs. Super Nerd out, out for a, a date night. And uh, we'll, we'll go to some place to have a steak or something, someplace to eat. And there's usually, you know, up, up at the bar area, the restaurant, they got the TVs on, t- typically to ESPN. And I was transfixed uh, a few weeks ago looking at the the um, the restart of the NBA and the fact that they're playing basketball. That's recognizable, but there are no fans anywhere. Yeah. And I'm looking at this and saying, what's the difference? between? I don't care how good these people are. What's the difference watching this on TV? versus uh, a really good um, pickup game at, at the YMCA. Exactly. exactly. There's nobody and- there. I mean, half of half of what makes the NBA games cool previously is how the, the crowd reacts to seeing the absolute best athletes in the world in this game at the top of their game do things. And, you know, if I'm, I'm a bit of a basketball nut, but but uh, having, having seen, you know, 
you know, it was a few years ago when when the uh, the Warriors were on, were trying to go for the the, the all time record in, for wins in one season, and they were going up against the Spurs, and that was like the game of of, of the decade. And the energy in, in the the arena there in, in San Antonio was obvious coming through. That you know you you could hear, you know that there may have been eighteen thousand people in the arena, but it sounded like fifty thousand or a hundred thousand. Yeah. It that's that's an integral part to the game, and yeah. to have professional basketball without fans, in in something that could just as easily be the the neighborhood high school gym, that doesn't yeah. look compelling. I mean, and get, getting back to your point of the quality of the play, here's what I think. I think that pro basketball has gotten extremely boring and it, it started getting really boring with Shaq. That whole deal of just pass it to the ginormous center or the ginormous power forward and he backs it down into the lane and turns around and does a layup or a fadeaway. And it's just, it's boring you know i disagree Um, because there's almost nobody left in the game who can do that the game now is you know pass somebody to the ball 30 feet away and let them shoot a three-point shot the warriors made that popular a couple years ago with with the the their their prolific three-point shooters and it's like half of the well three or four of the guys on the team can do that and now nobody plays defense because you can't spread the floor out that much Go back to when when Shaq was the dominant guy, and even back in in, in the when, when the uh, Chicago Bulls were dominant, mm. you had some real bangers in the middle. I mean, um, mm-hmm. the guy with the crazy hair who goes out, who thinks he's an Rodman. ambassador in North Korea, yeah, yeah, that guy. He he was physical in the middle, and and if if it wasn't uh, Kobe or not Kobe, if it wasn't um, uh, Michael Jordan driving in and, and making the shot himself or passing it off to number two, um, Pippen. Yeah, he was actually number 33, but whatever. The second option, uh, Rodman was getting all the rebounds and scoring as well. I mean, they had some real he, – he was going up against Bill Lambeer from the Pistons. I mean, now we're turning into a um, an NBA show. But the, the point is that that the, the real physical play, that was actually, I thought, a better form of basketball because nobody ever thought that you, you – you know, it was a hands-off European um, Olympic-style game. The the eighties, nineties NBA was pretty cool, and the fact that going back to the eighties, the fact that the Lakers with Showtime could go so fast and score so many points and and not get caught up in all that physical play. I mean, Kareem got his knees and ankles and everything else beat to heck, and nobody that that was kind of an underrated thing, or nobody really caught on to that. He still set the scoring records. Uh, that that was a a. That was a type of game. It was a combination of finesse and power. Now it's just how far away from the basket can you shoot the ball? Yeah. I mean, and who's one of the greatest basketball players of the 1980s? Larry Bird. Don't forget Larry Bird. Um, I, when I lived in Denver years ago, I would go to um, intramural, intramural basketball games. Like, for example... One of the campuses that I would go to for the basketball games was the Colorado School of Mines. And it, it was just it was just kids. It was just engineering students playing intramural basketball. That was fun because those guys aren't like super duper uber athletes. They had to run plays. They had to pass, you know, with finesse. That's uh, to me, I think that that strategic basketball, I think it's it's more enjoyable to watch. And man, that was fun watching those games. And, you know, it was just like an old um, it was just an old basically the size of a high school gymnasium. And it was basically their friends and family that were there. And 
it was everybody was cheering and it was fun and and that's that's some fun basketball to watch for me yeah I mean, it makes me think of you know, in terms of just the different style of play there there was um i want to say it was called the iowa rules basketball i don't know if it was all high school or if it was just women's or girls basketball but the idea if i remember correctly maybe i'm just totally misremembering this but the idea being that nobody could dribble the ball you had to pass and it ended up being um, the phrase "the constraint is the liberation." When 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 you cannot do something, and so your 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 constraints are what they are, you get more creative given the 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 parameters in play. So normally, it's it's almost unheard of, or it's it's kind of rare to see in college and, and pro basketball to see the, the team take the take the ball up the floor without ever dribbling it. Yeah. That's something you practice, and that's actually the ideal, where you're mm-hmm. moving it so fast that you never even have to dribble it, because you're moving the ball so much the defense can never adjust to you, and you're moving it. You're by by definition you have to be moving, and, and yeah. so things keep going. But if by rule you cannot dribble the ball, well, that gets pretty interesting in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's also. I mean, people don't realize there didn't used to be a shot clock. There didn't used to be a three-point line. The game has changed a lot. Um, in fact, the lane, uh, were, has there always been a lane? Or It used to be really narrow, like four feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, the Barnhart podcast. We just seamlessly go from COVID to the mass to basketball theory because that's how we roll. Naismith and nonsense. Let's bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's next on the bullet points? Well, so obviously the part of the problems that, that was facing the NBA before they got to the finals, I, I have no idea what's going on right now. So I don't know if they're taking a break because anyone's catching COVID, but they definitely had some some cases where when they restarted before they started the playoffs where teams would have to, to stop playing because somebody tested positive. And that, oh, gets, us into the, that, gets, us into the, that gets us into the vaccine trials now oh. uh, where – as, as you told me, the uh, vaccine trials are reportish helli- reporting hellish side effects in healthy adults. Yep. 100 and, 104 fever. Um, people just getting absolutely laid out by this damn thing. We need to put this in the show notes. Um, Mark Doherty, not too long ago, he posted it first. I fully cross-posted the whole thing because it's really important that people see it. Um, when you give, when you try to make and they've been trying to make a a coronavirus vaccine since the 60s because think about it coronavirus is is the is the common cold that was kind of like thought to be the holy grail for any of the big pharma companies who can be the first to come out with a vaccine with a cure for the common cold so in the 60s they were all scrambling to do this and so they did these trials they isolate you know, Corona Viridae, they cook it up and do whatever they do. They make a vaccine. They inject it into a bunch of people. It kicks the people's butts. Then what happens is when the people naturally just pick up a cold during the course of the season, because their immune system is already so taxed by having had a Corona um, vaccine, just a completely normal cold becomes like lethal. And I've covered this before and we'll put this link in. I had this link in like way early, like in March. 
they theorize that the reason that the two cities of Bergamo and Brescia, Italy, up in the north of Italy, up around Milan, the reason why they had all of these people just in super bad shape in in like March and April is because they had put Corona in that 2019 flu vaccine. And they tell, oh, all the old people, oh, you got to get the flu. You got to get the flu shot. You got to get the flu shot. You got to get the flu shot. Well, ho, ho, ho. It turns out that there's um, Corona in the mix, in, in the concoction, in the brew. And they think that what happened is that there was Corona in the batches that went to Bergamo and Brescia, maybe intentionally as an experiment to see what happened. Because it's absolutely true that those two cities got their butts kicked by this thing, that it just killed, it killed scores and scores and scores of elderly people why in the hell did why in the hell did all these people die it wasn't just because they were getting their lungs blown out on ventilators it was it was so statistically significant that something happened in those two cities and wait a minute when they did the lockdown in italy and all the people who are working up there in the north who are from the south of italy say oh crap they're doing a lockdown I'm getting on the train and I'm going back home to Naples or wherever they're from or Sicily. And there's this huge migration and movement of people south, like, you know, in, in the course of 48 hours. Why in the hell were there no cases of, of Corona cold in the south of Italy? There were almost none, almost none. What the hell is that? If this thing is some universal infectant, What's going on? The difference is the people. The people up north had gotten vaccinated with a corona-containing vaccine. Now they've given, I mean, they've been handing out billion-dollar grants to AstraZeneca and Pfizer and what Johnson and Johnson and whoever whoever else is on the list. The government. You know, look at the trillion. I mean, they're spending like a trillion every two weeks or something like that. Guess who's getting just handed billion dollar checks right and left? It's all of these um, big pharma companies tasked with making a vaccine. All right. Now they say and they're openly reporting this. This is a CNBC link that I sent to you, super nerd, that we'll post. It's CNBC, for heaven's sake. They're coming out and saying, um, yeah, this is kicking everyone's ass, but you know what, guys? We got to suck it up and we got to do this. Okay, wait a minute. If you're telling me that giving someone a vaccine gives them a 104-degree fever and lays them out and they're a completely healthy, vigorous 35-year-old man, what the hell do you think that's going to do to some 89-year-old grandma? It's going to kill her. Well, you mentioned you mentioned Bergamo and Brescia, which you said was near Milan. But isn't Milan near the uh, the apex of, of the Chinese manufacturing uh, hub in Italy? I know that yes. there was a, a very tight um, there's a very tight connection between China and northern Italy around the Milan area. Yes. Uh, I want to say with the fashion industry, especially the clothes yes. that were authentic Leather. Italian made and all the rest was actually not made by Italians. It was just made in Italians by authentic Chinese. By Chinese. Yep. And, and uh, the, the, because of that rep, because of that tight integration between China and, and northern Italy, which is part of their Belt and Road Initiative, 
Yeah, that, that was one of the reasons why Northern Italy especially was hit so quickly and so hard by coronavirus because they were getting, you know, actual Chinese people traveling back and forth from China. So when the initial outbreak happened over in China, it ended up in, in, in Northern Italy very quickly because yeah. there were a lot of Chinese there going back and forth constantly. But that goes back to a point that I've been making since March about this. I want to see the racial breakdown of what happened in Italy. I want to see the racial breakdown of this thing. How many of these people were Chinese? How many of it how many of them were, you know, just elderly Italian people? What is the breakdown here? But you're absolutely right. I believe that up or in northern Italy or all around Milan is the largest Chinese expat community outside of East Asia. And yeah, you're absolutely right. They're all up there. They're working in sweatshops. They're working in leather factories so that you can put that stamp made in Italy on stuff. But it's all made by by Chinese sweatshop workers who have just been brought in from China and work for peanuts. And they're they're also um, uh, this is and this ties all into anti anti Pope Bergoglio and the Vatican and all of this corruption and the selling out of the Chinese Church and and the Chinese Communist Party giving the Vatican two billion a year and all of this. The Chinese are basically trying to colonize um, Europe, but especially starting with Italy. They're just buying up businesses. They're buying off, you know, coffee shops right and left. And you think that's not a that's not a big deal, but actually it kind of is. They're just buying because the, the Italian economy is still very it's still very much smaller and there aren't many chains the way that there are chains in in North America every little bar is mom and pop. So you've got Chinese rolling in with $300,000 in cash. Tell me how that happens. Tell me how you get $300,000 in cash on a plane. Tell me how you withdraw and even have $300,000 in cash in this day and age, much less being a um, either undocumented or barely documented expat living in some foreign country, the whole thing just stinks to high heaven. They're basically colonizing Italy and the Vatican is aggressively facilitating and enabling all of this. And of course, we, we focus on Italy because of the connection with the Vatican, but it's not just Italy. It's Greece, it's central or, or, or south central um South Central Europe into Turkey. I mean, the, the the Chinese have this idea of the Belt and Road Initiative, where where they can ship their goods by rail and road directly from China straight into continental Europe. Italy, it obviously, is is one of the, um, the 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 manufacturing points of Chinese goods that don't have "Made in China" stamped on them. But that's by no means the only place. I mean, Spain's got a problem with this. Greece, big time. And, of course, any place where there's petroleum, the Chinese are interested, they want to get their hands into that as well. So that's the uh, Leviathan field off of uh, Cyprus and, and Israel. They want to get into that somehow, but they can't. Um, but I have to call time out on all the topics we've been talking about because I did say in the notes that I, I, I'm going to call a hard break at 50 minutes because we've got a more important topic to get to. Um, you already pre-approved the topic or the, the title for this uh, podcast being that the anti-church cometh. And so we need a segue to that now. Tomorrow, well, as we were recording, tomorrow, Saturday, October 3rd, the junior bishop in white is going to go to Assisi in Italy, the site of the abominable ecumenical conferences held by JP2. And while he's there, he's going to sign and publish what is being called an encyclical letter under the title Fratelli Tutti. What is this all about? 
it is a declaration of Freemasonry um, by by all indications. Fratelli means brothers and tutti means all or everyone. So it basically means we're all brothers, brotherhood, which of course is the the motto, the buzzword of Freemasonry. Liberté, egalité, fraternité? Ou la mort, or death. Yeah, exactly. That is the Freemasonic um, motto. And so what's expected and what I'm bracing for is that this damn thing is going to be basically a formal declaration that the anti-church is a Freemasonic entity and history will look back at it as a line in the sand. Um, so just so everybody knows when I write about this thing now in the future, cause there's going to be, I, there's going to be a lot to say about this. I can just guarantee you right now, I'm going to refer to it as either Finocchi, Finocchi tutti or Froci tutti, which don't ask me how I know all of these Italian slang terms. It, you know, probably has to do with the fact I've been reporting on the Vatican for years and years now. And boy, you just, you seem to have your sources over there. So I'm, I'm sure that you're, you're, you're picking up Italian in, in, in a similar, but different way that I pick up Italian because I love opera. Well, you can't talk about the Vatican without talking about male homosexuals. So you'll learn this vocabulary, but finocchi is, um, it's the word for the vegetable fennel, which we love fennel. It's kind of sad. I feel bad for fennel, but in Italian, it, it's slang for faggot. Um, but it's kind of the more mild version. So finocchi tutti would be, they're all fags, basically. And there's another word, which <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you who taught me this. I know exactly who taught me this. Father Z taught me this. Um, the and he posted this on his website because it's rude is the Latin word ferox f e r o x which means beast or bestial and so the Latin slang or excuse me the Italian slang word from the Latin root is froci froci f r o c i so you can call this this hellish document either finocchi tutti or froci tutti which means basically they're all fags so i think that's kind of that but it's it's gonna be bad guys and we need to brace for this and it's being dropped on saturday october 3rd which is one day prior to the one-year anniversary of the Pachamama thing, which I believe was the fourth of w- when they actually bowed down and worshipped the thing inside the Vatican, not when not when the guy stole it out of the church and uh, or removed it, <laughs> removed it from the church and threw it in the river. When they actually did the ceremony, I believe was the fourth of October. But of course, they can't drop a document on a Sunday, so they're dropping it on the vigil of the one-year anniversary of the. Um, um, worshiping of the Pachamama inside the Vatican, which I don't know if y'all noticed, but that's pretty much when when crap started to seriously unravel on a global scale was right after that happened. Um, so yeah, I think this is going to be this is going to be an absolute, it's going to be a shit show. Things are going to get real and they're going to get real very quickly. And one thing I do want to mention um, that I saw that somebody sent to me, the Italian Vatican, Vaticanista, the, that's means a, a journalist who formally reports on the Vatican, um, Marco Tosati, he published an essay and I think he is absolutely dead right on this. He said he thinks what the Vatican is trying to do, because we look at like, for example, we were just talking about um, the Vatican selling out Italy to the Chinese. And you say, what, what, 
why in the hell would they do that? What's wrong with them? Why in the world would you sell out Italy to the Chinese? You're, because you're, the Chinese like, have more money than the German Central Bank. Exactly. And but people still look at that and they think, well, you're you're betraying your own people. Well, who whose side are Satanists on exactly? Who who's on who's on their team? Who are their people? Let me fill you in. They don't have a team except themselves. Um, so why would they sell out to the Chinese? Here's what Tosati thinks that Bergoglio, the Freemasons, the infiltrators inside the Vatican are trying to do. And I think he's right. He's trying they're trying to drive the whole thing into such utter total insolvency that what they then do and claim that they have no choice but to do it is to hand Vatican City, St. Peter's, the Sistine Chapel, the Vatican Museums, the whole thing, hand it all over to the United Nations and it becomes a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And that is the ultimate Freemasonic goal, to completely and totally wipe the, the the church militant as as a visible body as an extant visible body off the face of the planet and i think i think that's true i think that's what they're trying to do and this is all just part and parcel of it so i was gonna make some smart aleck comment about uh the the secrets of the vatican archive being turned over to the un and then the tom cruise characters or or not tom cruise the the other tom um you know, it, it's too stupid of an idea. The, the the turning this all over, yes, it would make the formal break where the property, what we recognized as being the physical manifestation yep. of the Catholic Church, is now under UN control. Yep. Where because does that le- where does that leave us? And especially the fact that the the it, I keep talking about how at some point we're going to have to prepare to go underground and be the underground church in the United States um, and, and making the analogy to the, the state of the, the church in China and, and looking at the state of people in North Korea. Not that there's much of an underground church in North Korea, but just the idea of how do you even get information passed around in North Korea. We're yep. going to be reduced to that in terms of passing around catechisms, passing around missiles, things where you surgically get a micro SD card put under your toenail to be able to pass around the Bible or the catechism or something like that and then pass it off to somebody else to copy and then you put it back and you keep moving and you keep it under your steel toe boots because that's what the your overlords need you to wear when you're, I don't know, mining coal or whatever it is you do. It's going to get ugly fast. Well, what I think, what I think, um, I always try to think, pull the focus all the way back. What is Satan's objective here? I think what it is, is it's an attack on the theological concept of the visibility of the church, which is just absolutely essential. The church militant is visible. It is a visible reality. This Protestant heresy that it's this nebulous spiritual cloud that is, ooh, quote unquote, church. No, the church is a visible thing. And it is of the utmost importance that the church be visible so that the faithful can then go to Holy Mother Church, find her, and know where our Lord is, and know where the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is, and know where the sacraments are. If you turn the whole thing over to the United Nations and make it a UNESCO World Heritage Museum site, people look at it, and it's it's no longer the church. It's a museum. It's a, it's a UN Freemasonic owned and operated 
museum? Where is the church? Where is that that ontological reality, but that is that is that is visible, that is manifest in the physical universe. Where is it? That's a hell of a good question. And I think people need to be prepared to move on this and to offer some sort of resist a resistance, if only to say, here is the church. Here is the church. And oh, it's it's funny, wh- there's a saying about this where Peter is, there is the church. Um, uh, it's the, the, the solution to this is simultaneously so simple and yet so extraordinarily difficult, but it's difficult because of people. It's not, it's not difficult because it's, it's physically difficult to do this. This could, this could be taken care of by tomorrow afternoon. Um, you know, we mentioned in the last podcast that a saint for our times because of all of the the need for repentance for sins of the flesh was uh, St. Mary Magdalene. Mm-hmm. But one of the other great lines in, in Scripture, uh, St. Mary Magdalene rushing to the tomb uh, on, on the day after, um, or the, the, the Monday morning, or Sunday morning a- after the crucifixion, and saying, where have they taken him? Where is he? Yep. That, that could legitimately be a, a question that Christians are asking. Yep. Where is the church? And for all of you who consider yourself part of the loyal opposition who aren't Catholic yet, who are kind of on the outside, you're kind of on the fence, you're not terribly opposed to becoming Catholic, but you're not totally convinced yet, you may not have a lot of time to make up your mind and get in. And yes, the water is turbulent. It's horrible right now. Things are not, you know, as, you know, it's, it's not Norman Rockwell, 1950s American church, but this is when awesome saints are made. And yep. if you if you have that that reflex of faith to say yes, it's craptastic right now, but I believe in Jesus and I believe in His promises. I'm going to join the faith right now. I'm going to join the Catholic Church. Great things will come. Yes. It's not going to be easy, but the reward is great. Absolutely, but don't don't dawdle. Because if you were to pick up the phone right now and call the average Novus Ordo Parish and talk to the RCIA, that's the Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults. That's what the Novus Ordo conversion process is. They run it like a school year. Who knows if they're even meeting? But they would probably say something like, "Okay, yeah, you can come to the weekly Sunday classes, and then you know, if everything goes well, you would be received into the church next Easter." You know, if I well, were you. Yeah. Right now it's COVID-19. Everything is off. So Exactly. You know. Exactly. I'd be like, no, I want to go where a priest is going to give me um, instruction and we're going to move as fast as we possibly can. And if I can be, if father thinks that I am catechized to his satisfaction and I can be baptized, confirmed and receive my first Eucharist, have ma- have my marriage sanated, whatever it is, if we can get this done within a matter of literally weeks, like b- between now and Christmas, get her done folks, get her done because there's not, we're not going to have all these options that we're all so used to having. And I have, I have, a story that I have to tell this past week. I tell you about things getting dicey. I ducked in to a Novus Ordo church that I don't usually duck into, but I ducked in and they were having the, they had adoration and they were getting ready to do benediction. So when I entered the church and, you know, to pray the rosary, to kneel down, and pray the rosary, our Lord is in the monstrance on the high altar. Okay. The whole church is, um, you know, 
uh, masking tape arrows on the floor. The pews are all masking taped. I was by far the youngest person there. I think it was all senior citizens that were there. There were probably two dozen of them. Well, I'm not picking on you, but when you say by far, I mean, you're in your 40s, so... Going to be 44, I was by far, by far the youngest person there. Um, so they're all in their Masonic face diapers of submission. And I'm not kidding you. I knelt down, started praying the rosary. And I don't know. It's weird. I, I don't get bothered. And I don't, I don't know if it's because I'm under some sort of protection or if it's because, I mean, ever since this all, I mean, I've always always left the house fully dressed, but ever since Corona scam, especially, I'm just dressed to the nines whenever I leave the house, just as a form of protest against all this. Um, you know, put, put on your best, put on your hat, put on your makeup, do your hair, smile, don't run around in, in ninja pajamas acting like you're sick or something. It's just absolutely ridiculous. So I, I'm just dressed to the nines and I guess a combination of maybe, maybe I'm under some sort of protection and also just looking like someone who's just not to be trifled with at all. Nobody said anything to me. I got dagger stares, but what I noticed was they were all at each other's throats. These old people were going up to each other and poking each other and saying, you're sitting too close. You need to move over. You need to stagger. You're not sitting in the right place. You should be sitting in this place and not that place. These people were at each other's throats, all of them. And every time the door of the church would open, it kind of had a squeaky squeaky. And every time the door would open, you, you could hear they would all turn around in their damn Masonic burkas and they would just dagger stare down everyone who walked in looking like, I, I don't even know, looking like they wanted to kill the person or the person wanted to kill them. It was, it was one of the more disconcerting things I've seen in a long time to see a bunch of people in their 70s and 80s who were just just raging. They were just filled with anger and rage and at each other, at each other. Yep. So I don't know. It's, uh, it, it's really weird, but it just goes to prove the whole thing. All of this crap is designed to create diabolical narcissists. And I'm sure that, that Satan himself is saying, you know, it's never too late to create a diabolical narcissist. I can take a completely lovely 82-year-old little old grandma and I can turn her into a into a hateful, spiteful, suspicious, mistrusting, um, angry, raging, combative, diabolical narcissist. And I can do it in a matter of months. And guess what, folks? That's pretty much what's going on. Well, and if, given the right psychological conditioning, you can do it in a couple of days. Yeah. yeah. And and um, this is the first time we're recording a podcast where there's any video going back and forth because uh, it's it's not uncommon that I want to say something, but Ann can't tell that I'm trying to get a word in edgewise. 
<laughs> and I was, I was, I was holding up a can of WD-40 to my camera, and the whole idea of you hear the door creak open, and and people all turn around. It's like, okay, how about charity through WD-40? Carry, yeah, carry right. a can of that in your in your purse, and when, when you hear a uh, a squeaky door in the church, just you know, squeak it down. You know, silence is a virtue. You know, it helps helps keep the the prayer disposed or the the soul disposed to prayer. Indeed, uh, I, I was doing it tongue in cheek, but honestly, I mean, um, if if we're at the point where people are looking for reasons to be angry with each other and and we're certainly there i mean i hope you're not on twitter or facebook i mean i i I get on facebook for not to see what people are saying but because i manage a couple of pages there that i need to take a look at from time to time but on on twitter the nonsense today uh people gleefully saying i hope trump dies now that he tested positive for COVID 19 I the the most I weighed in on this was was to send a message message at Twitter saying if you guys are following your own rules you need to be banning and suspending everybody who is gleefully hoping Trump dies because it's the supposed your community guidelines that you are so that are so yeah. sacrosanct to you you know you idiots I don't expect you to really follow it but I don't know maybe I got banned for for doing that at Twitter who knows I haven't logged in yet. But but uh, in terms of you know the, the charity of people growing cold, we mentioned yep. this. You know, I don't know how many podcasts ago. This is just another example of it. Whether it's uh, people who, and again, these are people in a Catholic church at the the um, with, with the Blessed Sacrament being exposed. Yes, he's these, he's on the altar in the monstrance, and these people are at each other's throats. Unbelievable. The, these yeah. are people who, by their outward actions are suggesting they have supernatural faith that they understand and think and expect that there is something beyond this life. It makes complete sense for atheists who don't think there's anything beyond this life to be angry at you if if you cough in their near presence and say, hey, get that corona COVID thing away from me. I don't know if you have it or not, but I don't want it because I've got nothing other than this life. I need to have my fun and my pleasure now. But people who were at church yeah. Who are, who are before our Lord exposed in the Blessed Sacrament. You'd think that they have some semblance of faith. Are they, do they actually believe? We've, okay, we've said this before. Do they believe what they say what they believe? Normally we're talking about the priests and bishops, but in this case, the people in the pews. Do they believe this? They're old enough to have been raised in the faith before the 60s. Based on yeah, what you were saying, an eighty-year-old would be born in nineteen forty, which means that the council started when they were in their early twenties, and the Novus Ordo was promulgated when they were almost thirty. It's kind of hard. Yeah, they would be young enough to remember when we didn't have copper pennies; we had steel pennies during the early forties because yep. all the copper was going to the war effort. Yeah, these, these are people who know what it is to sacrifice. They would have been taught the faith by authentic Catholics. And at this point, they're so dang worried about somebody maybe kneeling too close to them because they might cough. I mean, come on. If, you, if, you're, if you're an octogenarian already, you're, you're past your expiration date. You're just waiting to get to the next life anyway. And if, you're, if, if your concern is that you might kill me, that's not a good indication. Yeah. It really isn't. And, you know, there's been... There was a phase in the spring when there were trad Catholics who were screaming and yelling, 
shut the churches, shut the churches, you psychopaths with your, with your Eucharistic piety. All you care about is yourself, blah, 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 blah. And it was really interesting because there were some, there were a few responses that I saw from people who were either elderly or older and immune compromised or whatever that said, um, I, I want people to go to church and pray. Why in the world would I, an elderly person, a person with immune issues, why would I not want people to go to church and pray? That sounds psychopathic. Even not, if they can't do it themselves, maybe right. somebody could do it for them on their behalf. Exactly. You know, get the email out on the prayer chain. Hey, I can't make it right now because I'm particularly immune to these uh um, respiratory conditions that are going around. Here are my prayer intentions, or I have right. four particular intentions that are known to God, but but I, I I don't need to say them on the on the prayer chain. Please remember me in your prayers. And for people who are going to adoration, remember that intention. For everybody who can't get to a church either out of fear or legitimate exactly. health concern, yep. please God, uh, let let my prayers raise up their intentions to your to your heart as well. Um, yeah. I mean, you're, you have a responsibility to go if you're young, healthy, have the mass available to you. I mean, I'm hearing horror stories about people, trads, who haven't been to mass since March. Um, it's been completely available to them. And their whole argument, well, is, you know, the bishop says there's a dispensation from the Sunday obligation, so but I'm not going to go. Uh, what? If, if you can go... You go for the people who can't, who can't by means of logistics and who can't because, yeah, if you've got, you know, 89-year-old grandma with lupus or something who, yeah, who seriously is, would be at risk of just getting, getting a common cold, you go for her. You and the elderly people, the pious elderly people, they want us young whippersnappers to go. They want us to be on our knees before our Lord in the tabernacle or before our Lord in the monstrance or the altar. I mean, this is a no-brainer. You have a moral responsibility to go now more than ever for as long as we possibly can until whatever whatever poop hitting the the rapidly spinning propeller situation, which like we said, the, the Freemasonic document is dropping tomorrow. Who the heck knows where any of this will be one week from today? Who knows what, what Lucifer has, what his plan is and how he wants to make this final push. Remember what his objective is. He wants to completely eliminate the holy sacrifice of the mass from the face of the earth. He made a damn good start in March. Damn good. And now he wants, he's got, he's got it, the whole thing down. He's got the chess pieces where he wants them to be. And he wants to finish the whole thing off. So you can't just sit here and just assume that nothing's going to happen. I mean, after what's happened in the last nine months, if you honestly think, if you still have normalcy bias, I, I can't help you. I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. And on this feast of the... The guardian angels, and of course, earlier this week we had the feast of Saint Michael, the exorcist angel. We need their help more than ever. This mm -hmm. is, you know, the, what we were just saying here about go go to church and pray for those who can't get to church right now, either because they don't think they can or they literally can't. It's called the communion of saints. It's not just 
The communion of saints isn't just for us praying for the people in purgatory. It's also for the people who are here still in this life, drawing breath, who can't get there. Right. You know, Our Lady of Fatima says that many souls are lost because nobody prays for them. The communion of saints transcends all three um, branches of the church. Church triumphant, obviously, all the saints in heaven and all the angels. Um, church suffering, the poor souls in purgatory. And church militant, those of us who are still here on earth. The communion of saints transcends that. It's everywhere. And eventually, there will be no more church suffering because purgatory will eventually empty out. The last soul will be purgated and will enter into the beatific vision. And there will eventually be no more church militant because the physical universe will be consummated. And so all there will be then at that point is the church triumphant. But for now, the communion of saints transcends all three all three branches of the church. So getting back to the uh, document uh, for Telly Tutti, um, I, I sent you a link that from the NCR who were really exercised about this. And, and I made, I don't know if I made the joke or I, I retra- retained this because it was a good line for the podcast. If the NCR thinks it's a bad document, then it must be good, right? They were all exercised. <laughs> that was all gender specific fratelli and, and brothers instead of brothers and sisters. Oh, good grief. <laughs> What else would you expect from the fish wrap? I mean, with with that bunch of people, I'm just rooting for casualties. Good. I hope they eat each other alive. Um, it's you're seeing you're seeing all kinds of things of, of different um, groups and entities just self destructing because they can't they can't exist and they can't abide under the weight of their own irrationality and their own their own stupidity you know at some point that you reach a critical mass and the whole thing just implodes in on itself you're seeing that in hollywood you're seeing that with sports you're seeing that with all of this stuff and yes now in the church and in the culture are they going to start are they going to start eating themselves um you know, cannibalizing themselves because, well, it's written in the Italian language and Italian is a gendered language. So good grief, we can't have that. I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm morbidly fascinated to see how it's going to play out once this, this abject stupidity of um, attacking gender in language hits the the romance languages what are the italians going to say about this what are the spanish going to say what are the french going to say i mean and it isn't just the romance languages many 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 language families have gender in the language meaning that a noun like chair is either masculine or feminine that brings up an interesting point gender does not refer to animals human beings anything like that that word is sex male and female human beings the word is sex not gender Gender is a linguistic concept exclusively. So you're talking about when you learn to speak Spanish, it's what the table is la mesa. You know, what's what's el? What's a masculine noun in in Spanish? El niño. <laughs> el niño. So that that is gender. It's a linguistic construct. It has nothing to do with your reproductive bits or anything. That word is sex, and we need to reclaim this and make this distinction. But I'm still morbidly curious to see when the Freemasonic thought police try to tell the Italians and the Spaniards and the French, you have to completely 
totally deconstruct your language. And guys, there actually is precedent for garbage like this. Napoleon and the French Revolution tried to do things like um, change the week from being seven days to 10 days. They tried to just, you know, radically change everything, the number of months that there were. Um, what are other examples of things that okay, they tried? Okay, so the idea, of going to, the idea of going to a 10-day week, that was part of their global attempt to do make everything uh, base 10 metric, which... Mm-hmm. I understand the people who chafe at the idea of using the metric system because that's something that's anti-Catholic or no, it was something that came about because of uh, the French Revolution. That technically is true. It's a, the metric system was something invented by an Englishman. And in the French Revolution, it was practical as well because there were over a thousand different units of measure or maybe it was a hundred thousand. I don't really, you can look up the article on Wikipedia and I'll take a note to put that in there in, in the show notes. But there, there were so many different units of measure throughout France that it became a practical measure because, you know, prior to the French Revolution, France operated on the, on the principle of subsidiarity. Whatever the local people wanted to do, that's what they did, including units of measure and, and other mm-hmm. things. But when you had a centralized control, top-down, which is kind of a satanic thing, Satan's the one who wants to have control over everything centrally. But mm-hmm. when you have this central control over the entire country, You've got to be able to understand what the heck you're talking about in terms of how many uh, feet of rope are you are you or meters of rope are you contributing to the war effort? How many uh, kilograms of grain and things like that? They had to have a harmonized uh, way of measuring all of this, and since it caught on and it was reasonable, the idea of you know a kilogram of water is is one tenth of a of a of a cubic meter. That there, there is some beauty to the way that the metric system works. Don't get hung up on the fact that it came about because of a, of an overthrow of, of Catholic nature. Yes, that that's unfortunate. It would have been better had the King of France said, "Yes, let's all do metric." It, it would have made sense. Now, my personal uh, belief on this, it would have been better if the metric system was based on 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 base eight. Because uh, when computers finally got around, everything that's an extrapolation of base two is better, but whatever. Uh, don't hate the metric system just because it came in with the French Revolution. Now, the idea of doing a 10-day week, that's a little bit different. You're now spitting in the face of God because it was God right. who ordained a seven-day week. Right. Exactly. Yep. And there, there were other examples. Um, also in China, Mao um, attempted to basically, and, and I'm going to make up a word here, androgenize, that's a word, androgenize everyone. There was a androgynous uniform that in the, I don't know, when was Mao, the 40s, 50s, 60s, that was issued that everybody wore the same, everybody had the same haircut, basically tried to androgenize everyone and everything. All of these super creepy attacks, so you think, oh, there's no way that they could even begin to try to demand that all of these gendered languages, all of the romance languages, try to completely eliminate, oh, hell yes, they can. Look what, look what they've done to English. You've, there are now, you know, uh, people who are filing lawsuits because they're called by the, uh, by the pronoun that, that matches their sex. So you call some dude who wears nail polish and, and eyeliner, you call him he, him, and he files a lawsuit against you. You get fired from your job. 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and on and on and on. Um, it's, it's abject madness. So yeah, I believe if this keeps going, if this keeps grinding on as it is, yeah, of course they'll try to do it. Sure they will. We'll just have to all start speaking Hungarian. It's my understanding that in the Hungarian language, we don't have gender in the same sense that the uh, Latin-based languages have. Hmm. It's an incredibly difficult language by, by all accounts, right up there with Finnish and, and other things like that. So I don't know. I think I, I'm reliably all- informed that there's a joke in Hungarian that uh, when a baby is born, some the, the, the question is, is it a boy or a girl? And they, they, they something like along the lines of we, we don't know, but it, it's, it's a play on words based on the lack of gender specificity. Uh, gender specificity in the Hungarian language. Hmm. So I don't know for all y'all Hungarian speakers, you can email podcast at barnhart.biz and let us know if I, if I heard that correctly or if somebody was completely snow jobbing me on that one. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. Boy, that's going to be a test of the audience. If we can get a a Hungarian to email us the, the, what, what sex is your baby joke? Well, no, we, I, I made a joke about Hungarian in the past and I got two emails saying, uh, with great anticipation, wanting to hear what we were going to say, because we promised we were going to say something in Hungarian in a future podcast. And we've never, um, made good on that threat or promise. So at some point, I guess we're going to have to do that. So there are, there are a couple who are listening. I think we need to like start with something a little bit easier, like Lithuanian. So, you know, we need to have Lithuanian Eve send us, send us something to say in Lithuanian. We can dip our toe in the pool of, of complicated Slavic languages. And then we can go into the, into that hungaro Finnic group if we're, if we're feeling really sporty, but let's start with Lithuanian. I think we should start there. Now let's start with a pod, an email to podcast at barnhart.biz and, or email, uh, email at com, And I'll, um, I'll, I'll contact you and, and see if I can get a recording of you saying something and I'll try to mimic it exactly. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. How are we doing? Uh, we're at an hour 28, but uh, I cut over at 52 minutes. So uh, I don't know that we've fully exhausted the Fratelli 2T stuff yet. I don't know. Freemasonry. It's um, just reiterating because most of the most most of the listenership is probably in North America still. Um, you just really need to appreciate what Freemasonry is the old men like my grandfather who got together and pay their dues and did philanthropic projects and played cards or whatever, and then did their weird, weird um, rituals. Those guys were mostly dupes, rubes. My, my grandfather would have been in that. We just, you know, whatever. They bled him for a little bit of money. But when you've got thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of rubes like that, that you're bleeding for money. And then that money gets collected in Washington, DC. And then, and then of course, sent over that, to Europe where they're actually yeah. serious about it. Yeah. In Europe, you have to under, and everybody in Europe knows this. And I've talked about this before on the podcast. If you can talk to a Frenchman or a Spaniard or an Italian or whatever, ask them like, what, do you do you know what Freemasonry is? And they'll look at you and they'll say, hell yes, I know what Freemasonry is. It is a massive political organization. It's, that's how it's been basically presenting itself. At the very top, 
Luciferian, 100% actual, honest-to-goodness worship of Satan at the very top of this thing. It was founded formally in 1717 in London. Now, did iterations of it exist before? Yes, absolutely. There were branches, there uh, portions of it that came out of Russia, um, specifically Russian Jews. There were portions of it that came from, you know, other other locales in the UK, wherever, back before 1717. Um, one of the roots of it is Kabbalah, which is is very old. Kabbalah has been around for centuries and centuries and centuries. So one I'm just going to root- say that a lot of the Masons, as I understand it, trace their lineage back to the Old Testament to the uh, Temple of Solomon. Uh, yeah. Any anything where it is not the authentic worship of of the actual triune god mm-hmm. whether it's the whether it's worship of the dirt the the earth the air the wind the fire whatever if it's satan couldn't really give a darn who you're yep. worshiping as long as it's not the actual triune god yep exactly and so from that perspective the essence of satanism or luciferianism has existed from the beginning sure and so in 1717 freemasonry was organized and formed the explicit objective of this thing, and it's been this since day one, is first and foremost the complete destruction of the Catholic Church. And what their tactic is, is go with the Pope. If you destroy the Pope, you destroy the Church. And so what their, what their tactical plan has been, and they've been very open about this, this is all in writing, is that they want to get one of theirs on the Petrine throne which is exactly what's happened. Now, anti-Pope Bergoglio isn't the vicar of Christ, but he's sure as hell squatting on the Petrine throne. They don't, they don't care. Half of them don't have any supernatural faith at all. The other half of them do have supernatural faith and actively worship Satan. They don't give a crap whether, whether Bergoglio actually is the vicar of Christ or not. They just want the power. They want the destructive force and capability, which is obviously what's been going on for the last seven and a half years. Meanwhile, Pope Benedict, the vicar of Christ, is sitting over in his little house, um, you know, under this absolutely amazing little bubble of what seems to be protection by the divine providence. The Freemasons think they've won. They're completely content with Bergoglio as he is. And if, if they get a successor, if they get a second anti-Pope, um, they'll be tickled pink with that. What they don't realize is that they're not winning. They haven't won and they never will win. But they're, you know, people who are who are diabolically disoriented tend to not be terribly self-aware and tend to not realize these things. They think they're winning. We, of course, know that they aren't. Um, but that's their agenda. Destroy the church, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, by going at the Pope. This is what they've done. 
they did they first they had to start with getting rid of all monarchies because remember the vicar of christ is the absolute monarch of earthly monarchs so the first thing you have to do is you have to destroy the concept of of monarchy in and of itself all over the world which is why they started all of these wars they started the american revolution they started the french revolution they started world war 1 they started world war 2 and all and all the other ones there's a hell of a lot more in there they're behind all of that. Almost every damn war in that involved Christendom. I mean, I'm not going to... You can say, well, you know, they do have their hand in all the crap that went on in, in Southeast Asia and all that, too. I mean, they do have a hand in all that. Well, Vietnam Let's, chased the French out of Vietnam. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, they have had their hand in absolutely everything. But the big objective was to completely destroy all monarchies. So the last one in Europe basically falls in um, during World War One. Blessed Karl of Austria, who's the Holy Roman Empire, who is the who is the Holy Roman Emperor. He's well, the, the last. The one. last. The last monarch who was actually exercising the monarchy on a day to day basis as the head of government, and there are numerous. Monarchy is still left in in Europe. I mean, the, there's there's a king of Belgium. There's a king of the Netherlands. There's a lizard. I mean, a queen in England. Um, <laughs> Spain that. technically still has a has a king, but they are figureheads. They're completely meaning meaningless figureheads. Look well, at look at at least in the case of at least in the case of England, on paper the queen can prorogue. Uh, the European part, or not European part? Well, she probably can actually. She can she can prorogue the e, the uh, UK Parliament and take direct command. Um, except that I don't that hasn't been done in quite a while. The last time any any um, UK uh, proroguing of government happened, y'all Canadian listeners, check me up on this one. Uh, the 2010 Olympics, uh, when when, when y'all had the Olympics up there in, in Vancouver, it is my understanding the Governor General prorogued um, the Canadian Parliament and on paper put Canada under martial law in case there was any terrorist events. So the SAS was, was on call to respond to anything. And, uh, there, there was no, um, shall we say problem of Canadian civil rights because the parliament had been prorogued. And then as soon as the, uh, the Olympics were over, then the governor general said, okay, y'all go back to what you're doing. Interesting. Yeah, eh? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but my my argument with regards to Queen Elizabeth is what what the hell good is she? She's not any damn good because I just thought of his name, Alfie, little Alfie Evans, bringing him up again. Okay, if she is the person that everyone says she is, if she's the uh, defender of the faith, if she has this power to basically do what she wants, why in the hell didn't she pick up the phone and save that little boy's life? Well, she might she might not have the faith, but one of her descendants might. And I think I've, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, and I'll have to try to find this in time to put it in the show notes. And if I don't put it in the show notes, podcast at barnhart.biz. Um, there, there is the um, prophecy of, or is, is the vision, or maybe it's both, uh, the vision slash prophecy of St. Patrick himself, who saw the, the, the fire of the Catholic faith spread over the entire island of, of Ireland and burn bright for centuries. And then all of a sudden it started going, going dimmer and dimmer and dimmer until there were only a few flickers and flames here and there. And, and then it looked like uh, there were only some embers and coals. And then at one point it looked like everything was completely out. 
and dead. The fire was mm-hmm. gone until uh, the, 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 the angel who was showing him the vision said, no, look closer right there. He looked closer up in the Ulster area. Now there was still an ember there and the ember started glowing brighter, started glowing brighter and caught flame again. And from there, the flame of the faith spread over all of Ireland. Who owns Ulster? I don't know. Ulster is part of the UK. It, that's the British um, part of Northern Ireland. Oh, okay. So it, in terms of, you know, this phrase it quite, phrase, phrase it differently. Who is the head of government for Ulster? It's the Queen. It's, mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the English Parliament. It's not the Irish Parliament. That's mm-hmm. part of the UK in Northern Ireland. So uh, the, the idea that, that yes, the, the Masons definitely wanted to do away with the notion of, of the monarchy. And mm-hmm. maybe... Maybe what's going to happen here when when uh, there is the restoration is these these monarchs who are fully bought in at the moment mm-hmm. are fully bought into the Masonic way of doing things. Maybe the people holding the office at this particular point in time are going to pass on and their successors are going to say there's something wrong here and lead the restoration. Long, long time ago, I heard. I, I don't even remember where I heard this, but I, I remember this. But the, the the idea being that that uh, the restoration of the English world would come from a King William. Um, there is somebody in line with that name. Yeah, yeah there is somebody in line with. And that there's popular name. call to pass the crown over um, Prince. What's his face? Yeah, Charles. that guy, um, Camilla's husband. Um, yeah. To pass it over to to William. Actually, actually, not Camilla's husband. <laughs> Mr. Parker Bowles is Camilla's husband, but yes, we all know what you meant. Right. And uh, you know, it's it's a good point that again, back circling back to where we started, the concept that God can do what He wants, when He wants, with whom He wants. You know who it could possibly be? It could possibly be that poor little boy that we should all be praying for, who's currently living in Los Angeles somewhere with his mother and Prince Harry. Who knows? It, it could be that kid. Pray, pray for that kid because she is nuts. Markle is a stone cold psychopath. And oh my gosh, she's the kind of person that would, you know, like try to turn that that child into a sex pervert or try to turn them into a into a drag queen or something like that she's a hateful spiteful miserable psychopath and that poor little boy but if there's the whole world kind of realizes the trouble that kid's in and prays for him and again god could do what he wants i mean it maybe it might be an example of when, even within a family, when the pendulum swings so far that the children of the most completely dysfunctional generation then tend to be much better people themselves because they they have a front row seat to their parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, whatever it is, to all of that dysfunction and just narcissism and psychopathy that they say, okay, we're not going to be that, (laughs) you know, we're not, we are going to rebel against these, these rebellers, you know, we're, we're going to turn the whole thing back around. We're going to counter rebel. So who, who knows what could happen with that little boy, but I don't know. I, I, I really don't want to have to put my faith in either one, but if it's, if it's up to me, I would not put my faith on the ginger and his kids. I would, I would bet on William and and Kate, but 
uh, given given the way that uh, the history of, of the uh, the English Church or whatever they call themselves, they have invalid baptisms. So William yeah. is not baptized. His father and and all the royals are not baptized. So we should if, explain. If they, we should explain why, because validity of baptism is very much in the forefront of people's minds because of all of these, you know, people finding out, priests finding out that they were never validly baptized. The reason why the royal family is not validly baptized is because they have multiple people do the baptism, right? Yeah, so one, one person per, yeah. one person pours the water while another person says the the words. And it can be absolutely perfect in terms of the pouring of the water and the saying of the words. But if it's not the the one minister doing both, it doesn't have to be a Catholic priest for, for the baptism to be valid. I mean, a Hindu can baptize a Muslim. Mm-hmm. A Catholic can baptize a Jew. Yep. Um, I've mentioned this before, and you know, we'd go through this in our catechism classes. All the different permutations of, of, you know, can a Zoroastrian baptize a Hindu? Can that blah blah blah? Can a Jew baptize a Catholic? Yes, no, you can't because a Catholic, by definition, is already baptized. So that's that's the only the only combination that doesn't work. But everybody who is rational has the ability to confer the baptism, the, the sacrament of baptism. You have to pour the water. You have to say the right words. It's not we. It's I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I got an email from somebody saying that uh, you're not supposed to say the word amen. Okay. Um, maybe. Um, but then again, amen is technically a separate sentence. Uh, there's a it's period. It's after it's done. It's yeah. after it's done. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, I mean, okay, whatever. I mean, I, 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 I don't think that invalidates it. No. Um, but anyway. It, it, it doesn't. It doesn't take any kind of um, orders in order to be able to confer the, the sacrament of baptism. But it has to be the same person pouring the water who is saying the words. Otherwise, you have inaccurate form or insufficient form, invalid form. It, and it didn't work. The reason why they do that is because, and I've I've also heard. Have you heard this? That maybe one person says, "I baptize you in the name of the Father," and then another clergyman says, "I baptize you in the name of the Son." That they split it up. Presumably, the reason why they're doing that is because, oh, it's such an honor to baptize a member of the royal family that we have to split this up, you know, so that people can share. Different clergymen can share in this honor. Presumably, that's what they're doing. It's just, it's all messed up. It's all messed up. You know, the Cardinal of Canterbury, or whatever they call their their uh, presbyter in chief over there, who's actually a layman, that should be the one who has the 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 right to baptize the royals, unless he delegates it. But uh, it should be the one person. Mm-hmm. And the other, speaking back about the ginger, the other point about him is that it's questionable whether he's even actually blood related which is a serious question whether or not he's even charles's son whether he's even charles's son which i'm sorry i'm sorry but if you look at those pictures it's boy it's compelling it's compelling that he's that other guy's son so that's why they killed diana i mean that's why diana died so tragically well she was also getting ready to maybe marry that musloid oh what a what a train wreck she was oh Goodness gracious, what a mess. Hey, England, oh. when you leave the faith, bad things happen. Yep. Yep, indeed. You're now mission territory, England. You've basically completely apostatized, and we're 
going to have to start over with you. You so. lost the most beautiful form of the Latin liturgy that ever existed. You, you Now you just get the, well, I, as though it's a punishment, you just get the plain solemn high mass now. Oh, <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, in the in like the six places that it is. I mean, it's it's not it's not thick in the UK the way that it is in France, as we were talking about earlier in the show. So yeah. Although if you go to LatinMass.live, there are several streams. I think they're still pretty active on on, on the weekend. Uh, in I think Walsingham's got one now, uh, mm-hmm. or has had one for a little while. Uh, there are some different um, live streams of the Latin Mass over there and out out of England. But this is the Latin Mass that is uh, from the you know, quote prima. Well, I <laughs> I gotta take that back for a second. It should be quote prima. I don't know what missile they're using. It could be 1962 at this point. Maybe they've got an indult to do 55 or pre 55, but it, it's not the serum, right? Is my point. Oh no, 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 no. It's almost certainly the 62. I would, I would think. I mean, they're just they're FSSP and they're they're Institute of Christ the King, just like pretty much everyone else. So, yeah. What do we got? What do we got? Do we did we hit all of our bullet points? I have um, blank space and then links on my notes here. All right. Well, it looks like we're closing in on two hours, so we should. I've probably... got one forty-five. Okay. All right. According to my notes, I said hard limit at uh, fifty minutes. We had to switch over to uh, talking about fertility, Tootie, and then um, we. I figured we'd go for an hour or so. I I figured this might be a, another two-hour episode, but I guess not. Well, I mean, just remember, guys, um, we're going to record a matzah cast on Monday. So we'll be talking about two things about (laughs) Dr. Matzah's thoughts on whether or not um, Donald J. Trump is the um, catacomb of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which it just kind of sounds funny to say that in and of itself. And we'll also, I'm sure... Um, have plenty to say about um, Finocchi Tutti. So yeah, be stay frosty and and watch the podcast feed because they'll be they'll be coming rapidly. I think during the month of October, I suspect. Okay, and uh, let's go ahead and go into the to the wrap up. But let's do it halfway backwards because I didn't have my notes completely ready yet. I did the show notes, but I didn't get the donor stuff ready. So how about you do the uh, Matthew seventeen twenty, and then I'll do the rest in a second. Absolutely no problem. The Matthew 17, 20 intention is wherein we pray every day and fast twice a week, if you can, for the following fourfold intention, that anti-Pope Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-Pope and that the whole thing be nullified, that Pope Benedict XVI Ratzinger be publicly recognized as having been the one and only Vicar of Christ since April of 2005, that Bergoglio repent revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace in the fullness of time. We're not rooting for him to die. In fact, he needs as much time as he can possibly get because he's got a lot of issues to work through, to put it mildly, and someday achieve the beatific vision, of course. And likewise, that Pope Benedict XVI Ratzinger, repent of whatever he might need to repent of, die in a state of grace in the fullness of time, um, and likewise someday achieve the beatific vision, nothing nothing less will do. 
when you're asking for things, you go big or you go home. Don't say, well, I'm that's just too much to ask of God that Bergoglio revert to Catholicism. Oh, no, it's not. Oh, no, 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 no. In fact, I have the sneaking honking suspicion that maybe um, the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist, if that's who he is, he might be the anti-Judas and he might be, he could conceivably be the guy who is that foil to Judas Iscariot and who actually does repent at the end. It's conceivably possible. If nobody's praying for this, if nobody's praying for Bergoglio in a way that Bergoglio needs to be prayed for, I mean, you can, you can pray to God all day long to make Bergoglio the best Pope ever. That's like praying to God to make Bruce Jenner the most beautiful woman in the world. Um <laughs> Uh, what do you expect God to do with that? Because it's kind of irrational, you know? That's, that's I mean, not exactly the mental image I had in my mind. The idea of, of, of uh, praying to God for, for uh, Francis to convert and, and uh, die well. The thought that came to mind was the, the ending scene of, of the, the movie The Bridge Over the River Kwai, where the, the British general or the British colonel uh, who, had, who had collaborated with the Japanese, although he thought he was doing his duty, uh, built this beautiful bridge over the River Kwai, that which was going to deliver Japanese troops and armaments and all the rest to the Japanese war effort, all of a sudden realized when the British commandos are coming up saying, hey, our orders are to blow up the bridge. What did you do building this thing? And he all of a sudden realized, what have I done? Yeah. And his last act was to blow up the bridge. Um, dare we hope that Francis can do the same? Anything is possible. Absolutely anything is possible. No one is a write-off. He can, he can revert to Catholicism. He can make a good confession. And he can, he can become a good person again. And we have to pray for him in that sense. But not, oh, make, make Pope Francis a good Pope. Well, no, no that's, that doesn't comport to reality. The key, one of the keys to him reverting to, to Catholicism and going to confession and making a good confession is of course acknowledging the lie of of all of this and what he has done and masquerading as as the pope and all of this yeah i mean it really is um his eternal fate and and the state of his soul hinges completely on this question i don't i don't see how it would be possible for him to not repent of all this and make it through his particular judgment i i, I don't see how that would work so just once again pray pray for the man in the fullness of truth and and pray that uh somebody who is an authentic um i don't want to say recreation but re-representation of john the baptist can uh, encounter him and, and get him turned around. I mean, how, how hard would it be to get Father Isaac over over to Rome to uh, <laughs> have right. a meeting with him? That, oh, man. <laughs> I, that might be a little too brutal. I don't know. But he, yeah. he, he definitely would do it. Um, uh, since we're going backwards, I'll, I'll just go do my show notes backwards here. Uh, the right. Barnhart Podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. If you found something of value in this or in previous episodes and would like to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com where you will find all the information necessary to be able to do that, which is what Stephen did. And um, if you're following notes and writing down names, this is a different Stephen. There's been about four different Stephens donating, so just because I'm using the same word, and I'm not it's not like John Doe or something like that. It's just, we've got a proliferation of Stevens. They're awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Stevens. Um, 
Anne expresses her profound gratitude to all of her benefactors and at least one mass every single day, plus one traditional Catholic Requiem mass uh, is offered every single week for everybody who died in the previous week. Please remember all of these priests uh, in your prayers. Um, If it's not obvious that they're already under attack, it's going to get a whole lot worse, especially when the, um, when when the, the anti-church and the church split the, the, the the priests that we're talking about here, Almost certainly, I, I don't know who they are, and Anne, Anne would know more than me in this case. Almost certainly, they're all going to be going underground. So, yeah, uh, if the to the degree that they are already uh, under the thumb and under suspicion and under attack, it's only going to get worse. So, please pray for these priests um, and all priests, because without them, we have basically no chance at eternal life. We that that's how we get the sacraments, and without the sacraments, we cannot be saved. The email address of the podcast where you can send feedback, suggestions, uh, Hungarian phrases, or any other good news items for wrapping up the podcast. We didn't end on a, on a positive note today, but the email address is podcast at barnhart.biz. And since I'm going backwards, I'm done. Right on. Unless you have anything else to say, uh, until next time, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Anne. Thanks, guys. God bless. <laughs>